But God, I have mortal flesh. And I confess that my mortal flesh would like to preach. But I pray that you would silence it and something immortal would preach. And that, Lord God, through the power of your Spirit, you'd give all of us the courage to listen. So in this moment, Lord God, we surrender our flesh to you and call on you to do something divine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this is it. Today we're talking about Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through 21, what a lot of people call the second coming of Jesus the Christ. It's the topic of, of this book, the, the Glorious Appearing, which was the 12th book in the Left Behind series, which altogether sold something like 80 million copies. Uh, this was on the New York Times bestseller list for 22 weeks. So I'd, I'd just like to read a little bit of it to you. This is page 103. All of this, all 21 judgments that have come from heaven in three sets of seven, that's the revelation so far, have been God's desperate last attempts to get man's attention. Page 132. This sure is different from the last time Jesus came, Naomi said. Page 178. God knew that eventually sinners would grow weary of their own poverty, but his patience had a limit. There came a time when enough was enough. Page 203. Heaven opened, and there on a white horse sat Jesus. Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. The armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. An angel cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit upon them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Page 208, as Rayford slowly made his way down to the desert plains. Though he had to concentrate on missing craters and keeping from hitting splayed and filleted bodies of men and women and horses, Jesus still appeared before his eyes, shining, magnificent, powerful, victorious, and the sword from his mouth, the powerful word of God itself, continued to slice through the air, reaping the wrath of God's final judgment. The enemy had been given chance after chance, judgment after judgment to convince and persuade them. To this very minute, God had offered forgiveness, reconciliation, redemption, salvation. But except for that now tiny remnant of Israel that was seeing for the first time the one whom they had pierced, it was too late. Page 218. That's Jesus, and he's here now. That rod of iron sounds like he's gonna take no baloney from anybody, doesn't it? I heard that, he responded. Tens of thousands grabbed their heads or their chest, fell to their knees and writhed as they were invisibly sliced asunder. Their innards and entrails gushed to the desert floor, and as those around them turned to run, they too were slain, their blood pooling and rising in the unforgiving brightness of the glory of Christ. The conviction that shone in the eyes of Jesus was of one who had finally had enough. Finally had enough. So according to this book, and most American, scripture, most American Christians, it would seem, Scripture's mistaken. And the steadfast love of the Lord does not endure forever. But in fact, it ceases. And his mercies do come to an end because he does not actually accomplish all things according to the counsel of his will, as Paul wrote, but at some point he'll just get desperate, snap and go postal on all humanity, and that's actually his glory. 
unforgiveness. As Slahay and Jenkins put it, blood pooling and rising in the unforgiving brightness of the glory of Christ. Now, some folks obviously love that picture of, of a Jesus that stops taking, you know, baloney from the damn hippies and such. They love the fact that Jesus finally gets, at last, Jesus, you finally get violent, that he gets violent on, on some folks, other folks, that is. On the other hand, some people are utterly horrified that Jesus would ever get violent at all, or that Jesus would even allow for violence in his own creation. Last week, I watched a YouTube video in which my old friend Lisa described how she and her husband visited Auschwitz and how he had lost his faith and how hers was badly shaken. The video has 1.5 million views, and it's only been up for like a week and a half. Michael and Lisa used to attend my church, uh, or our church up on Lookout Mountain, and the church that they started used to meet at the sanctuary on Sunday nights. Michael and Lisa became two of the most popular Christian artists in America today. We sing a lot of their songs in, in worship on Sunday mornings, including a song that repeats over and over again, God is love and he loves everyone. God is love, God is love. I preach God is love because John puts that in, 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 his, in his letter, First, First John, two places, God, God is love. The Bible says that. Some folks think that means that he would not allow for violence at least not like Auschwitz anyway. So when they see violence, they think, well, God is not in control, or God does not exist. They think love would not allow for violence, and certainly, certainly never ever be violent. That's why many in our particular community of belief are now arguing that God never actually instructed anyone to sacrifice, because it's violent. Clearly, according to Scripture, God does not need the blood of sheep and goats. I mean, he made them. He doesn't need the blood of sheep and goats. And yet, you've got to do incredible violence to the Bible to suggest that he never called for any sacrifice. Like in the temple, or the tabernacle, or, or on a cross on Mount Moriah. You know, the high point of New Testament theology is when Paul writes to the Romans saying, therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And then he writes, this is your spiritual, and the, the word in Greek is logikos, this is your logical worship. This is the logical thing to do after everything that I've told you. So it's not like Jesus ended sacrifice, it's more like he was the one that finally got it going. <laughs> You know, Jesus is the Word of God, Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, makaira in Greek. It refers to the large knife that the priest would use to uh, fillet the sacrifices in, in the temple. Sharper than any two-edged makaira sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. See, the Word not only cuts the flesh away from bones, it, it cuts the soul away from the spirit, the psyche away from the pneuma. Soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's called judgment. Crisis is the noun, it's where we get our word crisis. Uh, crino is the verb. It means to separate or cut. That's what the Word does. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, so God, yeah, seems rather violent. <coughs> to be violent is to violate something. Why is God so violent? Who or what does God violate, and how does he do it? Revelation 19, verse 10, where we left off last time. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. 
Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in or by or with righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, just as John saw, remember, at the start of the vision. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine and white and pure were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to smite, to strike down the nations. Not some nations. Not part of each nations. Just the nations. <laughs> and on his head, uh, or, or no, and, and he will rule them, the nations, with a rod of iron. He, he will tread the winepress of the fury. Now listen, the ESV translates it this way. He will tread, but the Greek is really clear. The Greek is he does tread. It's a simple second person present indicative verb. The translator just changes it in order to try to make, make sense of things. Scripture reads, he does tread the winepress. That means that this is not a description of something that happened in the distant past. And it means that this is not simply a threat about something that might happen in the future. This is an explanation of something that is happening right now. Right now. He does tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God now. A few, a few weeks ago, remember, we saw that the wine press produces wine that's blood and blood that's wine. And it must surely be some sort of reference to, to the cross. Early church fathers argued that the blood on his robe was his own blood. And yet his blood is our blood, right? And our blood is his blood. The life is in the blood and he is the life. His spirit or breath is like the oxygen in, in the blood. All blood. Well, he was crucified once and for all, all people in all space and time. He does tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God right now, where eternity touches time now. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. That's quoting Psalm 2. He does, he does tread the winepress of the fury, the passion, the thumos of the wrath, the anger of God, the Almighty, the Pantocrator in Greek. That means all-powerful. That means he accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his, his will. His will is entirely free. He wills what he wants, and he wants what his will, he wills, his, his will is his word. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Deuteronomy 10, that's a title for Yahweh, the, the Lord God. So, yeah, he seems to be violent. But it's a strange kind of violence. This is judgment but it's a strange kind of judgment. It's strange like judgment is strange in the Gospel of John. You ever notice that? John 3, 19, this is the judgment, the judgment, one judgment, not many, one judgment. This is the judgment, the light has come into the world. John 5, 22, the Father judges no one, says Jesus, but has given all judgment to the Son. John 8, 15, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true. He's, he's like the judge who is the judgment of not judging. <laughs> you know, the very fact that God forgives is like an unforgiving judgment on all our unforgiveness. As if unforgiveness cannot be forgiven. It's the unforgivable, unforgivable, unforgivable sin. John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. Do you suppose that the judgment is now? Even as I'm speaking this word? Verse 47. I did not come to judge the world, says Jesus, but to save the world. Not some of the world. He says just the world. 
The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. The word he speaks is called reality. Well, I'm just saying that the violence is strange. Or in biblical parlance, holy. But make no mistake, it is violent. So who or what does holy violence violate? Verse 17, then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast. And the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war. Remember, this is what happens at the end of this sixth bowl that we read about a few weeks ago, which is like the end of the sixth day, which is the Friday on which humanity, all the kings of the earth, gather together and they nail the word of God to a tree in the middle of a garden. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of, of the beast and those who worshiped its image. We've talked all about that. Uh, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with theon, translated sulfur or divine being. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Ah! But you know, this is nothing new in scripture. The prophets said this would happen. In Zephaniah, kings and princes are invited to a sacrificial feast and it turns out that they're on the menu. Ezekiel 39, God calls to the birds of the air to come to his sacrificial feast and eat the flesh of kings and all nations. It's like men have eaten the birds and now God turns the tables. <laughs> it reminds me of my favorite cartoon. Remember this cartoon? Colonel Sanders at the pearly gates. <laughs> Uh-oh, giant chickens. Anthropologists actually speculate that this is the reason why we find the practice of sacrifice in every ancient culture down through the ages. There's something inside of us that tells us life is a miracle, life is sacred, and when we take life and eat life, a deity must be thanked for that life. So almost every time in ancient cultures when they had meat, it was also a sacrifice, a, a thanksgiving to, to, to a, a deity. Something tells us that if we take life, we should in some way give life back. The, the life is in the blood. You, you know, the temple, when you, when you study it, it was like a giant barbecue. I mean, they ate most of the sacrifices. It was like a great banquet. In America, we constantly take life, drain the blood, eat the flesh, and thank no one. And we think we're so advanced. Anyway, I wonder what we'll find at the pearly gates. What have we sacrificed? In case you're a vegetarian and think you're off the hook, you need to know that grain and grapes are also life. Bread and wine is life. Both were considered sacrifice in, in ancient Israel. And Jesus said, I am the life. We constantly feed our flesh with life, and Jesus is the life. Like I said, uh, you know, they ate most of the sacrifices in the temple. It was like a, a great banquet. The, the temple was all about blood. It was like the circula it was almost like a, a heart in the middle of Israel, circulating blood, which is life, a stone heart. And one day, maybe it would be made of flesh. Well, anyway, we were asking this question, who or what does holy violence violate? And then the angel in the sun invites the birds of the air to eat the flesh of all men. All, all men. That, that's all people. <laughs> that's violence on all, including the tribulation saints or those that were supposedly raptured before the, the tribulation, which 
doesn't make any sense to me, but, but, but it says all, violence on all. They even quote the text in the left behind books, but it's like it just doesn't register. It doesn't register with them and it doesn't register with us. I mean, you do know that one of two things will happen to your flesh, right? Either it will be eaten by birds or worms or bacteria, or it will be burned up with fire. Verse 17, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. God is like thoroughly violent toward our flesh. What does God have against our flesh? Human flesh. You know, I've been asking this question ever since college. When I was dating this girl and really horny, I was asking this question, what does God have against flesh? When I was asking that question, because uh, uh, of that reason, and because I had just memorized Romans chapter eight, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. I think the mind or the disposition governed by the flesh could be called the, the psyche. So what's God's problem with the flesh? People used to argue it was sex. But God's first commandment is to have sex. You should be fruitful and multiply. That's physical communion within the covenant of marriage, bearing fruit that's, that's life. Now, there's a wrong way to have sex, but how could enjoying God's first commandment be disobeying the very same commandment? Some say the flesh is hunger for food and a desire for riches like gold, but the streets of the New Jerusalem are paved with gold. And heaven is described as a great banquet. What do they eat up there? I've read and thought about this long and hard, and, and I think I know the answer. You know what's wrong with your flesh? It's alone. Alone is the very first thing ever declared to be not good in all of Scripture. And check this out, it was not good before the fall. God breathed his pneuma, his spirit, into the dust, and the Adam became a living psyche, a soul. Then God looked at the Adam and said, it is not good for Ha-Adam, the Adam, to be alone. Now think about that. Adam was alone, which is not good, which is evil. But Adam did not know the evil or the good, who is God. Adam is alone, and yet so very not alone. Adam is alone in the presence of God, who is the good, and who is love. Adam is alone, but he doesn't know love or not love. He does not know good or evil. Adam is alone, so God says, I will make a helper fit for Adam, and that's not Eve. Eve is simply the side of Adam. He is she, and she is, is he, and both need a, a helper. Male and female teach us about the helper, but neither is the helper for humanity. We still need help. Over and over, Scripture says, God alone is your helper, humanity. The problem with our flesh is that it's alone. And this is what I mean. Because you don't believe me. Take, take, your, take your fingers, your thumb and your forefinger, and find a, a naked place on your flesh and just pinch it really hard. Pinch it really hard. Did it hurt? You're not doing it, Scott. Pinch it. Did it hurt? Pinch it till it hurts. Did it hurt? Pinch it till it hurts. Okay, now turn to your neighbor. Find that spot on your neighbor and pinch it just as hard. Pinch just as hard. Go ahead, pinch, pinch, pinch. Did it hurt? Now, it hurt that they pinched you, right? But your pinch of them did not hurt you. You see what I'm saying? Your flesh only feels its own pain. 
Your flesh only feels its own pleasure. Your flesh is alone. And yet there are some exceptions, notable exceptions. There is a moment in the sacrament of the covenant of my marriage when my bride's pleasure is actually my own pleasure. And scripture says that at that moment, two flesh become one flesh. That stresses people out. So another example. When I was a kid, I couldn't wait for presents on Christmas morning. As a new dad, I also could not wait for presents on Christmas morning, but not because I was getting them, but because I was giving them. I mean, I actually felt my kids' joy as if they were my flesh. And that's what we say about our kids, right? That's my flesh and, that's my flesh and blood. And because I had four kids, I think I enjoyed Christmas four times as much as a dad than I did as a kid. Uh, I mean, I actually enjoyed giving more than receiving. It wasn't a law, it was just a reality. Imagine if you considered every person in this world to be your kid. I mean, your own flesh and blood. I think we're utterly terrified to do that. We're terrified because we could not endure the pain, right? There's a lot of pain in this world. But imagine if you could endure the pain. Or imagine if you didn't feel the pain, but just felt the pleasure. It would be the pleasure of 7.4 billion people combined. You know, in a single body, all, all pain comes from places wherein that body is broken or separated. But pleasure is what the body feels when all the parts live in perfect communion. If we're all one healthy body, I mean, the pleasure would just be unspeakable. So what's wrong with human flesh? Number one, it's alone and can barely even imagine not being alone or even wanting to not be alone. Number one, it's alone. And number two, now brace yourself, it grows. The flesh grows. It grows by taking life and excreting death. It grows by eating food and pooping. You're embarrassed. Don't be embarrassed. We all poop. So just get over it and pay attention right now. The flesh grows by taking life, and Jesus is the life. And it appears that you have a deity to thank. The flesh grows by taking life, and the psyche grows by taking knowledge of the good and using that knowledge to judge itself and judge the neighbor. In other words, the psyche grows by competing. It grows by telling itself that it has made itself righteous. The psyche is self-righteous. It's your ego. In biblical lingo, it, it, it takes the law and justifies itself in the power of the flesh. And it is horrifically alone and is not good for Ha'adam, the Adam, to be alone. Alone. But this was not a surprise to God. In the middle of the garden, God had planted a tree. It's how we learn to love love and he's still making Adam in his own image. The tree, as we've said, was either one tree or two trees in one spot that looked just the same. On the tree was the good in flesh, and the good is the life, who is Jesus. Eve and that first Adam saw that the tree was good for food, and so they took the life, ate the life, and produced death, like a beast. And they saw that it was desired to make one wise, so they took the knowledge of the good and used the good to make a life for themselves, kind of like a whore. Adam and Eve is us. Each, each one of us. But you see, there is something that you're beginning to know, isn't there? There's something you're beginning to know that you did not know the day that you were born into this fallen world. You are beginning to know that it is not good to be alone and you are beginning to long for love. Love who is your helper and has a white horse. 
Well, anyway, it's not good that ha-adam is alone, it's evil. And to help us understand the evil and the good, I've produced these incredibly beautiful and sophisticated graphics as we have been utilizing throughout our educational journey uh, through the Revelation, and perhaps they would help now. In the beginning, God breathed his spirit into dust, creating my soul. Remember the, the blue dots that we've been talking about? I think my spirit must be the thing that says I and is breathed by I am. I am breathes I into, into me. I is so hard to talk about. The thing that says I, that thing, you know. So when I say I, I'm talking about the thing that says I. I is so hard to talk about for the moment I think about I, I has become me. I is the thing that observes me and so cannot be the me that is observed. I am now, but me is a thing that I imagine in space and time. It exists in the past and exists in the future, but, but not now. I mean, I, now is hard to talk about because the moment I say now, it's already become the past. And I could talk about now and the future, but then it's the future. But I is now. I think I can be described as consciousness. And me is my soul, the blue dot. If I was better at graphics, I'd try to make each of these blue dots look like a baby. Well, in the beginning, I did not know that I was alone and that it wasn't good to be alone, but I soon began to know and I took knowledge of the good, realizing that I wasn't good and tried to make myself good so that I'd never be alone, uh, so that everyone would like me. I tried to make myself good, which resulted in only being more not good, more, more alone. In other words, I tried to make myself in the image of God. In other words, I tried to justify myself in the power of the flesh. In other words, I tried to make myself righteous and made myself unrighteous. In other words, I grew an ego, which I thought was me, the me that I think I, I made. So when people said, who are you, Peter? I would answer by describing what I had done. I would describe my deeds. I thought I am my resume. Jesus calls this me the human psyche. John and Paul refer to it as the flesh or this body of death. When Paul describes his flesh, this is fascinating, he describes all his religious accomplishments. And then he says they're not worth scubula, which in Greek means shit. Self-righteousness is shit, writes Paul. This is the sum of the judgments that I, I alone, have made in space and time. This is the old Adam. But check this out. This is the new or eschatos Adam. This is the sum total of the judgments that I am has made in space and time. Now I don't know if I'm saying this exactly correctly, but this body is the manifestation of the judgment of God. This is the body of Christ. <laughs> the psyche of, of God. Now, this is an incredibly profound mystery, but Jesus the Christ did have human flesh, but now he has a different kind of flesh. He had a perishable body, but now he has an imperishable body, and he's in the process of giving that body to you. But first, you have to lose your psyche if you want to find it. You see, Jesus doesn't think like you. <laughs> He doesn't think like you or think like me. He doesn't feel only his own pain and experience only his own pleasure. He weeps with those who weep and he laughs with those who laugh. Says as if each of us, all of humanity, was his very own body. This is the judgment of God. This is the good and this is the life. His judgment is to freely bleed, to freely bleed for, for us all. His judgment is to sacrifice, sacrifice him, himself for each and for all. His judgment is absolute, relentless, and furious grace. On his last day, enthroned upon the tree in the garden, he cried out, Father, forgive them. And it is finished. That's the judgment of God. This is the judgment of God, and you see, it violates my judgment. <laughs> it violates my psyche. 
It violates my flesh. It violates the illusion that I am my own creator and my own savior. It violates the antichrist. That's the imitation Christ that I think is me. It violates the abomination that, like Jesus says, justifies itself before men, that which is exalted among men, the lie that takes its place in the throne, in the temple of my soul. It violates the beast that consumes life, that strives to be first by consuming the last, because just look, the very first has made himself the last. It violates the whore that attempts to buy and sell love, because just look, love is, love is so free that nothing can stop it. When I see that, when, my every cho- when I see that my every choice to exalt myself, when I see that my every choice uh, to exalt myself was with my every choice, I crucify God's self. When I see that with my every choice to exalt myself, I crucify God's self and he lets me, forgives me. Would you just see how that obliterates my ego? In other words, it violates the hell which I have created for myself and in which I am imprisoned. What I'm trying to say is my flesh is why I'm alone. My psyche is the fig leaves with which I have clothed myself and in which I hide. My ego is why I compete thinking that I must take life to make a life, and Jesus is the life. He didn't crucify me. I crucified him. My flesh, my psyche, my ego, it's why I am so violent. We Americans, we kind of cloak our violence with civility, don't we? But one could argue that we rich, competitive, and independent Americans are the most violent bunch in the world. Adolf Eichmann was violent. He was one of the principal architects of the Holocaust and the genocide at Auschwitz. In 1962, having been captured in Brazil, he was tried in Nuremberg, Germany. A little old Jewish man who had survived Auschwitz was called to testify. When Yehil Denur entered the courtroom, he turned the corner and his eyes met Eichmann's eyes. They looked at each other and he stopped cold in his tracks. He began to shake, to tremble, and then he began to scream and shout and he dropped on the floor. He collapsed on the floor. When it was over, Mike Wallace interviewed him and asked him what had happened. Was he terrified at the sight of that inhuman monster? And Denur responded, I was terrified about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this exactly like he, myself. Do you realize that yourself is your own greatest enemy? It's what God was revealing to his chosen people, the Jews, all along. He caused them to recognize the evil in their enemies and then revealed that their greatest enemy was the self, themselves. Wouldn't it be nice to get rid of yourself? Do you, do you realize that every moment of true joy that you have ever experienced was a moment in which you lost yourself? You stopped thinking about yourself? Then later you found yourself and you thought, wow, I was happy. I was, just, I was just really happy. Good news. Your flesh will be eaten by worms and burned with fire. <laughs> but wouldn't it be nice to have it removed before that day? <laughs> Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, better to cut it off than to be thrown in the fire with it. The problem is that it's not just your hand that causes you to sin. It's your flesh. It's your psyche. You actually need a selfectomy. You need a full body transplant. You know, I think that's why we get old and shrivel up. It's so that we just get sick of our flesh and surrender it to God before he has to come and take it away. And he will take it away. 
That can be a terrible experience, like being slaughtered, or kind of a good experience, like a surgery, you know, in order to remove a, a cancer. But that God cuts the flesh away is not bad. It's good. It's his judgment. Jesus does not save us from the judgment of God. Jesus is the judgment of God that saves us from ourselves. The judgment of God is the word of God. It's the flaming sword at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. It's the knife in the hands of the high priest in the temple. It's the thing that cuts to the division of psyche and pneuma. The judgment of God is the word of relentless love. It's grace. God violates our violence with grace. And now you, you may be saying something like this, come on, <laughs> this warrior, this word that cuts the flesh from the bones of all men, you're saying that a word could ever be described as that violent? How could a word ever be described as that violent? Because <laughs> it is. I think it is. Sorry for yelling and everything, but I think, I think it is. I've been preaching for almost 40 years. I've preached about abortion, divorce, adultery, homosexuality, money, politics, every hot topic you could think of. But nothing has ever come close to inspiring as much hatred as preaching that God is salvation. And that nothing, not even the illusion that you are salvation, is stronger than God and his judgment of grace. God is salvation is a word in Hebrew. Yahashua, Yeshua, Jesus. Well, I preach Jesus wins, and I've never in all my life witnessed so many people so angry and so offended. The week that I was publicly tried and defrocked, Philip Yancey took me to dinner. I can't remember whether he took me or I called him saying, help me. I can't remember, but we had dinner. He wrote one of my favorite books, What's So Amazing About Grace. I remember at dinner, at one point, he said, you know, Peter, I really can't disagree with anything that you've said. I think God, I mean, gosh, I think God is capable of it all. But Peter, do you realize that when you preach this stuff, it cuts people? It, it, it like pierces people. It cuts people in like, a, like, like something that's almost primal. I think he used the word visceral, something primal and visceral. Do you realize that it cuts people in this primal and visceral sort of way? I felt so broken at the time. I don't think I answered out loud, but I answered in my heart, yes, yes, I do. I think that thing is called the flesh. You see, the news that God is salvation means you are not salvation at all. It means that no flesh will boast in the presence of God. It means that your ego is destroyed, your resume has been burned, and you are no better than anyone else. Even Hitler. You see, it's the word that delivers you up to crucifixion. And check this out. It doesn't end sacrifice. It's the judgment that gets it going. Love is not the opposite of sacrifice. Sacrifice is the very definition of love. In this is love, writes John. Not that we love God, but God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Sent his son, who is himself God's psyche. The atoning sacrifice. God didn't love so, so that you wouldn't have to love. God loved so that you would want to love. So that you would get to love. And God didn't sacrifice so you wouldn't sacrifice, but so that you would want to sacrifice. So that you would choose to love in perfect freedom. I've said this several times and I'll keep saying it. When one person sacrifices in a, in a fallen world, it looks like a naked man hanging on a cross. When two people sacrifice for each other, it looks like a good marriage and even a pretty exciting honeymoon. When all people sacrifice, when everyone sacrifices, it looks like a party. 
or a body where each member bleeds into the next member, gives blood and receives blood, and there's no pain for all are joined as one, and each member feels the pleasure of all. When everyone sacrifices, it looks like the new Jerusalem coming down. In Ephesians, Paul writes, there's one body and one spirit. Put off your old self, your old man, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on your new self, new man, new Adam, created, created, already created, created in the image of God. What's your old self? Well, I think that's the me that you think that you made. And what's your new self? That's Jesus. And how do you put him on? Well, it must be something like this. This is how you become very, very, very not alone. <laughs> and that's good. That's life eternal. At the cross, Jesus destroys your natural body, your flesh, and he gives you a spiritual body, his flesh. As in Adam dies, so in Christ we'll all be made alive. We die with him and rise with him. We die with him and rise with him just as he dies with us and rises with us. He said the judgment you pronounce is the judgment you received. He pronounced the day you eat of it you will surely die, and he did. <laughs> with us. And he also pronounced, let us make man in our own image. And he is. He's rising in us, as us, the new us. We are his body, and he actually is our head. We are his bride, and he is our helper. About 14 years ago, I spoke at a conference in the Czech Republic. I spoke on the Revelation, and I had a free day at the end, and so some folks there took me down to Auschwitz, and I visited Auschwitz. I walked through Auschwitz alone. Remember, I walked through the field of ashes. I walked through the gas chambers. I walked past the ovens. At one point, I went into the barracks, and I crawled up into one of these bunks, and I just laid there. And I remember I had this overwhelming impression. He was here. <laughs> the king of the Jews was here. In prayer for, for a friend recently, I'd seen him in places even more God-forsaken than that. And, and now I knew it was just like Ezekiel had prophesied. The birds would eat the flesh cut from the bones of all, but the Son of Man would prophesy. He'd prophesy to the dry bones, and the dry bones would live, and flesh would appear on those bones, and God would lead them all into the land. The whole house of Israel, Ezekiel 30. That even includes Judas. The whole house into the land. Judgment begins with the house of God, and it ends when we are all his house. The king of kings and the lord of lords cuts the flesh from all men, and in, in one and a half chapters, Revelation 21, a voice will come from the throne saying, look, 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 I make all things new. And then begins the party that has no end. Because it is the end. It's the resurrected body, bride, and temple of our Lord. It's us made in the image of God, and God is insanely happy. Now, I realize that you may have questions about that. We'll keep preaching on this more next week. But if you feel utterly lost, maybe this will help you understand. Understand the revelation of Jesus one day about 21 years ago when my daughter Elizabeth was about eight, the two of us were driving down the mountain after church. Elizabeth did not seek these things out and she'd be embarrassed that I talked about these things now. But she turned 29 yesterday. She lives in Chile and she's married so she'll just have to deal with it, okay? <laughs> but I remember as we were driving down the mountain that day, she said, Daddy, I saw something today in church after you preached, when people came forward for communion, I saw these, like, 
this is what you called them, cutter things, they came out of the walls and they just started cutting people. They like cut off their arms or their, their legs or even, even their, their heads. But, but as these people hobbled around the communion table, taking communion, they began to bump into each other and then like fuse together. They'd fuse together at the point of the wound where they had been cut. And then she said, Daddy, I, I wasn't frightened because it was really cool. For in the end, they had all formed one huge body and nothing could hurt it. And I bet you, it was insanely happy. And so on the night that he was betrayed by us all, he took bread and he broke it saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. At this table, we remember Christ. <laughs> and at this table, Christ remembers us into his body, <laughs> his body. So don't run from the judgment of God. <laughs> run to the judgment of God and let him remember you. <laughs> he, he cuts off that which separates us one from another and us from God. And he stitches us together like the world's greatest surgeon because that's who he is. In Jesus' name, um, believe the gospel. Amen.
life hurts, doesn't it? I mean, in this world, we experience physical pain, fleshly pain, and we experience psychic pain. And we have an enemy that will lie to you whenever you experience pain and say, that's because God hates you. But you see, it's the exact opposite. It's because God wants you to share in his joy. No man ever hates his own flesh, wrote Paul but he nourishes and cherishes it as his own body. The eschatos man does not hate his own flesh. You see, there are different kinds of flesh, and this is the shock. You are not your own. You're the body of Christ, and he loves you more than you could possibly even begin to imagine. So believe the gospel in Jesus' name. Now, before you go, kind of by way of announcement. I want to tell you that there, there's a, another guy that had a vision one night at church. It's my friend Dale. It was about 10 years after Elizabeth had her vision. He and Amy were serving communion. And he said, Peter, you had preached this sermon about how God has dreams that are different than our dreams. And I prayed, God, what's your dream? And he said, I looked up and I saw these people coming forward for communion. And as they would come forward for communion, they would then begin to bunch together. But, but it was almost as if it was in an orderly sort of way. And then when they would bunch together, they would begin to fuse. And then they all began to climb up on the cross, and they became the body of Jesus the Christ. Huh. <laughs> That's God's dream. And that's my way of announcing that if you'd like to be part of a life group, <laughs> we'd love to help you do it. But you see, a life group is not like some kind of, it's like I don't even know if th that we should have a name for it because it's just Christians getting together. And um, it can take all sorts of different forms. And it's not getting together as the world gets together. In other words, you're not getting into a group to judge each other. Remember what Jesus said? I judge no one. However, the word that I speak will judge them on the last day. So the idea in a life group is that you would just get together and love each other and you would speak the word of grace. And that word cuts people. It cuts away the ego. It cuts away the arrogance. It cuts away the things that divide us from each other so that we can begin to experience the joy of the great party that is the kingdom of God. So if you're not in something like a life group or some place where you get together with other Christians and you just live in the light of his judgment, we would love to help you do that. So Kathleen and I will be down in the entryway, and uh, the idea is we just help sign people up and give you some tools that might be of assistance or they, they might not. But whatever the case, um, believe the gospel. And when you believe the gospel together with other people, God begins to knit you together, and you can even begin to experience the great party here in this fallen world. And I think that's God's dream. And God dreams good dreams. So in Jesus' name, God bless you. Believe the gospel. See you, see you next week. And if you'd like prayer, members of the prayer team are down front. They'd love to, love to pray with you.